You know when you read about how much your body benefits from eating smarter, including healthy proteins, being keto-friendly, or maybe just being more conscious with your calories, they usually don't tell you that you're nearly required to become some sort of amateur chef, or at minimum, spend a lot of time searching for recipes and ingredients. That is, unless you know about Factor. The ready-to-eat meals at Factor are not only delicious, but they're great for you. And they can also be ready in just two minutes. Do you have two minutes to feel so much better about what you're putting into your body? I bet you do. There are over 35 different options to choose from. There's no prepping, no cooking, no chopping ingredients. You just heat it up and enjoy it. Factor is full of fast premium options and being a part-time chef, not required. Head to factormeals.com slash 10MM50 and use code 10MM50 to get 50% off. That's code 10MM50 at factormeals.com slash 10MM50 to get 50% off. During their four-month reign of terror across L.A. from October 1977 to February 1978, the Hillside Stranglers raped, tortured, and murdered over 12 women between the ages of 12 to 28. When the cousins were finally unmasked, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bueno Jr., L.A. was able to breathe a sigh of relief, at least for some time. Welcome to 10-Minute Murder, brief and bingeable true crime. I'm Joe, I'm the host, and thank you for joining today. And today, the episode will not be brief. Well, not as brief as normal. I get a pretty overwhelming number of messages asking for deeper dives into some of the larger, more notable stories. So that's what you've stumbled into today. I will not be in a rush to tell this story, and there is going to be a lot to cover. I mean, I'm not going to drag it out, but you'll notice that it's a little bit different than normal the normal 10-minute murder episodes. And trigger warning, the story today is very disturbing and violent. I don't imagine you'd be shocked that a podcast with murder in the name of it is unsettling, but just so I can say that I said it, heads up. Before we get to it, subscribe to 10-Minute Murder where you are listening right now. Also, if you listen in other places, subscribe there too so that you don't miss any future episodes of 10-Minute Murder. Another way to be sure that you aren't missing out on anything, you can connect with me on social media. I let you know on social media exactly when new episodes are available, and I also post the visuals that go along with the episodes that you're hearing about. And for those of you asking about 10-minute murder shirts and stickers and things like that, there's a link for that in the episode notes, as well as links for where you can connect with 10-minute murder on social media. Now, let's get to today's story. Born in Rochester, New York, on May 22, 1951, Kenneth Alessio Bianchi was the child of a single alcoholic sex worker. He was quickly adopted by Nicholas and Francis Bianchi when he was just three months old. And from that early age, it was clear that Bianchi had many developmental and behavioral issues that his parents struggled to cope with. His mom would describe him as being a pathological liar with a short fuse and a bad temper. At age five, he was diagnosed with having absence seizures in which he would stare blankly into space and be unable to remember the last minute of events when he eventually came to. 
His mother also had him wear sanitary towels after multiple instances where he would wet himself. It was at this point that even doctors would note that Frances Bianchi, his mother, was struggling to cope with her son. Bianchi fell behind at school and had trouble making and keeping friends. Although he had a very high IQ for his age, he fell behind academically. And in 1957, at the age of six, he was enrolled in a private local Catholic school. During his time in private education, he continued to struggle both personally and academically and moved schools twice after proclaiming that his teachers made him too nervous to learn. At age 12, an incident was reported where he sexually assaulted a six-year-old girl by pulling her pants down. There was no explanation offered for this by Bianchi. In 1965, when Kenneth Bianchi was just 13 years old, his adoptive father, Nicholas Bianchi, passed away from pneumonia. Bianchi was noted at the time to have exhibited no emotion over the death of his father, not even crying at his funeral. With his father dead, the household was on a single income, and they couldn't afford the private education they once had previously enjoyed. So Kenneth was sent back into the public school system and enrolled at Gates Chili High School in 1966. During his time in public high school, he continued to struggle academically and focused a lot of his efforts on dating. But whether it be a result of his strict Catholic schooling beforehand or knowing the truth of his birth, for a long time, the women in his school could not live up to the standards of purity. He expected every woman he met to be a virgin while he didn't have to live up to the same standards himself. In 1969, Bianchi graduated from high school and proposed to his high school sweetheart, Brenda Beck. The pair married in 1971, but that union did not last long. Bianchi cheated on Brenda multiple times, and after a string of affairs, the marriage was annulled just eight months later. At this time, Bianchi had been studying at Monroe Community College in hopes of one day becoming a police officer. After one semester, he dropped out, unable to keep up with the workload, and started taking a range of low-paid jobs just to get by. He was frequently fired after being caught stealing, with one instance where he worked at a jewelry store as a security guard. He was taking jewelry and giving them to one of his many girlfriends. Many people that knew Kenneth at this time described him as having the personality of a used car salesman. And by the way, no offense if you sell used cars or someone you love sells used cars. But you have to know that there is a stereotype that they're talking about. If that's not how you conduct yourself, then awesome. You're one of the very few good ones. If you are slimy and will literally say anything to get what you want, then please take full offense. The used car salesman vibe is what his friends and family say that he had. In 1975, at the age of 26, Bianchi moved to L.A., living with his cousin, Angelo Bueno. Angelo Bueno was 17 years Bianchi's senior and was also born and raised in Rochester by Italian immigrants who divorced when he was very young. At five years old, Bueno, his mother, and sister moved to Glendale, California. It was there that Bueno's behavior seemed to spiral. It was said that Angelo idolized Carol Chessman, who was known as the Red Light Bandit, a convicted robber, kidnapper, and notorious rapist who terrorized L.A. in 1948 before he was caught and sentenced to death. That was who he chose to idolize. By the time Bueno left high school, he had already had a long rap sheet for various crimes. In 1955, Bueno married 17-year-old Geraldine Vinyl. But even shorter than Bianchi's marriage, Geraldine and Angelo went their separate ways just a week later. But it wasn't a completely clean break, because in that short time, Geraldine had become pregnant. Angelo went on to have six children altogether. 
with Mary Castillo bearing five children to Angelo after the pair married in 1957. The marriage ended in 1964 with Mary seeking a divorce from Bueno because of his violent tendencies. And Mary had attempted to reconcile with her husband during the divorce proceedings, but when Bruno handcuffed and threatened her and her children at gunpoint, there was no going back. In 1965, Bueno married again, this time to 25-year-old single mother Nanette Capino. And during this marriage, he had a string of arrests for failure to pay child support maintenance as well as being convicted for stealing cars, but only received a year's suspended sentence due to needing to provide for his large family. Once again, Bueno found himself in divorce proceedings after allegations of rape against him from Nanette from her 14-year-old daughter. By 1975, Bueno was working as a car upholsterer when Bianchi came to L.A. in search of a fresh start. The cousins sought out various ways to make money, with Bianchi at one point even buying a fake psychologist credential and setting himself up as a counselor. But after a string of failed endeavors, the pair devised a scheme where they would recruit women, typically runaways, to pimp out as sex workers, with Bueno and Bianchi pocketing most of the profit. Their pimping business had limited success. They had initially managed to convince two runaways, Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears, to work with them as sex workers. The cousins kept the young girls living in constant fear. They were raped, beaten, and tortured by the pair for non-compliance. Becky was able to escape and leave the city with Sabra, running away shortly after. With no girls to pimp out, the cousins soon dried up, made worse by the fact that Bianchi, who was already struggling financially, had his car repossessed. Desperate for the income, the pair approached a well-known sex worker named Deborah Noble, who, with her friend Yolanda Washington, provided Bianchi and Bueno with a list of their regulars. The pair quickly realized that they had been scammed with a fake list and sought out revenge against Deborah and Yolanda. Yolanda, who was just 20 years old at the time, had told the cousins previously that she regularly works on Sunset Boulevard. Knowing exactly where to find the young girl, Bueno and Bianchi tracked her down, and their brutal rampage begins. On the 17th of August, 1977, Yolanda was seen being escorted away by two men pretending to be police officers. The next day, her naked body was discovered, posed in what could only be described by investigators as intentionally grotesque on the slopes of the entrance of Forest Lawn Cemetery. Yolanda had been raped, beaten, and strangled with a piece of fabric. For their second victim, they had set their sights on Deborah Noble, but were unable to track her down. The cousins had a thirst for vengeance, but being unable to find Deborah, they looked for someone to take Deborah's place. On October 31, 1977, Judy Miller, a 15-year-old Hollywood High School student, sex worker, and runaway, was last seen leaving a local fish and chip shop, Carney's Diner, close to Sunset Boulevard, at around 9 p.m. Shortly after leaving, she was approached by Bueno and Bianchi, who flashed their fake police badges and escorted her to Bueno's car upholstery shop. Eight hours later, Judy's body was found in the residential neighborhood of La Crescenta. She had been raped, sodomized, and strangled, and as with Yolanda Washington, she was laid out naked with marks on her wrists and neck. The cousin's third victim, another sex worker, 21-year-old Alyssa Caston, was savagely beaten, raped, and strangled. Her naked body was found on a highway embankment near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. 
The police had picked up that the M.O. was similar in all of the murders to this point, but there was no panic from the public, and they didn't pay much attention to the crimes until their fourth and fifth victims. On the 18th of November, a high school student, 17-year-old Kathleen Robinson, was added to the growing list of murders. Kathleen was quickly followed by two more young victims, 12-year-old Dolores Sapita and 14-year-old Sonia Johnson. The pair were last seen on the 13th of November, 1977, on a trip to Eagle Rock Plaza. A witness reported seeing the pair get off a bus and go over to a sedan and speak to someone on the passenger side of the car. Their bodies were discovered by two little boys a week later. One of them, a nine-year-old, who was out treasure hunting in a mound of rubbish close to Dodger Stadium. The boy initially thought that he had found a pair of mannequins and had climbed up to have a closer look. It was only when he got closer that he realized that they weren't mannequins. They were the decaying bodies of Dolly and Sonia, who had been left to rot and were swarmed with insects. The investigators were instantly able to recognize the all-too-familiar M.O. and announced the danger to the wider public. The media began to run wild with the story of an uncaptured serial killer living in the shadows of downtown L.A., sensationalizing the brutal crimes and not realizing there were two people to blame they dubbed the mystery man the Hillside Strangler. The media circus was made worse because on the same day that Sonia and Dolores were found, the decomposing remains of 20-year-old Christina Weckler were also discovered. Christina's body was presented with slightly different injuries in comparison to the Hillside Strangler's usual victims. Alongside the usual signs of rape and ligatures, detectives noticed two puncture marks on her arm, which they later discovered Windex had been injected. Christina had lived in the same apartment complex as Bianchi, and he was interviewed during their initial investigations alongside other residents of the building. Bianchi was able to provide an alibi which the investigators deemed solid enough to not follow up, and Bianchi was free to go. It was at this time that the investigation turned a corner. Where they had previously believed that the hillside strangler was acting alone, they alerted the public that they now think two people were committing the brutal homicides. Bodies were turning up all over the city at this point. Detectives were aware that the women were being murdered elsewhere before being dumped, but they were no closer to any leads. It was Thanksgiving when the body of Jane King was found, a 28-year-old aspiring actress. Jane's remains had been dumped close to the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Highway. Due to the level of decomposition, it was unable to be established whether Jane had been sexually assaulted, but she had the usual ligatures associated with the murder by the hillside stranglers. Like Christina and the puncture marks, Jane also had an injury not typical of the killer's M.O. Her hands and palms had been burnt. Investigators questioned if this was the start of the serial killers ramping up their crimes. They had already switched from sex workers to any woman they could get their hands on. What was to say they were not now experimenting with new methods of torture? Just six days after Jane's body was found, detectives were alerted to the body of 18-year-old Lauren Wagner, on the 29th of November, 1977, in the hills close to Mount Washington. Lauren was a college business student and was living with her parents at the time of her death. Her parents had raised the alarm when Lauren failed to return home the night before and they discovered her car parked with the driver's door open. Lauren's father spoke to Beulah, one of the neighbors, who told him that she had seen Lauren outside of her home at around 9 p.m. She went on to tell him how two Latino-looking men had pulled up their car beside her one of the men got out and dragged Lauren out of her car into the back of his. But terrifyingly, 
Beulah said that she heard Lauren screaming as she was being forced into the car. Quote, you won't get away with this. And Lauren's father asked Beulah the question that we're all thinking right now. Why didn't you report this immediately to the police? She said that she was too afraid by what she had seen to report it. Confirming the police theory that the killers were looking to change their M.O., Lauren had been severely tortured before being burnt alive. Bueno and Bianchi murdered two more women before the killing stopped abruptly in February 1978. The body of 22-year-old sex worker Kimberly Martin was found on the 9th of December 1977 and 23-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth on February 20th, 1978. Cindy had been found in the trunk of her own car at the bottom of a cliff. Police noted that Cindy and Christina had lived in the same apartment building, but for some unknown reason did not pursue this lead. Kenneth Bianchi at this time was in the process of applying for a job within the LAPD and even attended a ride-along with the police to look for the hillside stranglers. After no additional bodies had turned up after the discovery of Cindy and no new leads, the team investigating the hillside stranglers was disbanded, and for now, the case went cold. When he first arrived in L.A. at a New Year's party, Kenneth Bianchi had met his girlfriend Kelly K. Boyd. The pair were on and off throughout the cousin's reign of terror across the city. The relationship was tumultuous, with Kenneth never stepping up to be the man that she wanted him to be. He proposed twice to Kelly and was rejected both times. In 1977, Kelly announced that she was pregnant with Bianchi's child. The pair had lived together for some time in L.A. before Kelly announced her intentions to move to Washington to be closer to her parents. Bianchi was initially not included in these plans, but after months of back and forth, finally he joined Kelly and their newborn son in Washington in May of 1978. Obviously, Kelly was unaware, but at this time, the tensions between the two murderous cousins had reached a crescendo. Bueno had found out that Bianchi had spent time with the police, you know, that ride-along looking for themselves, and he threatened to kill his cousin unless he left the state. So with that, Bianchi moved to Washington and found work quickly as a security guard. By all accounts, he was trying to settle into the normality of family life, putting the murders behind him and moving on without his cousin. It was in Bellingham, Washington that Bianchi accepted a position at the Whatcom County Sheriff's Reserve. However much Bianchi tried to settle into family life and put his past behind him, his taste for murder was not quelled. Not completely. On the 11th of January, 1979, Bianchi convinced two Western Washington University students, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, into coming over to his home under the guise of applying for a babysitting role. Once in the house, Bianchi pushed the pair down the stairs, raped, and strangled the girls, killing both of them. It was at this point where his cousin was normally a big help, but without it, he failed to cover his own tracks. Kenneth placed both bodies in Karen's car. The two women were immediately missed, and when the usually punctual Karen failed to show up for work, her boss contacted the police and advised them that she had mentioned interviewing for a babysitting job a few days previously. While the investigators were working hard to try to track down who had hired the girls, a woman who had heard of their disappearance in the news contacted police and told them a car similar to Karen's had been abandoned in the woods near her home. The car was, of course, identified as Karen Mandix, and the pair were found dead inside the vehicle. Also inside the car was a note that one of the girls had written detailing her plans to meet with Bianchi. Kenneth Bianchi was arrested on suspicion of the murder and although he presented an image of your stereotypical family man, a loving husband who was kind and articulate with the police, 
It didn't sway their assertions that Bianchi had killed the girls. While the scene where the car was dumped was searched, investigators found Bianchi's driver's license. They also conducted a forensic analysis of the car and searched his home and found indisputable evidence linking him to the crime. It was at this point that the Washington police made the link between the similarities between the deaths of Karen and Diane to those killed by the Hillside Stranglers. When presented with this and the evidence that already loosely tied Bianchi to the serial killings, he tried to claim insanity. Bianchi denied knowing anything about the crimes and pretended to have disassociative identity disorder, which is also known as multiple personality disorder. But when police searched Bianchi's home, they found the books on the disorder and even literature on how to fake multiple personalities. Bianchi was confronted with this evidence and that he was faking the disorder. He quickly cracked, confessing to the two Washington murders and the Hillside murders, but not before giving up his cousin as well. Bianchi was offered a plea deal. If he pled guilty to the Washington murders and some of the Hillside murders and also testified against his cousin, he would avoid the death penalty and instead face life in prison. Bianchi told investigators how he and Bueno would pretend to be police in order to lure their victims away. He detailed each and every crime, describing both his and his cousin's actions and involvement in each. Angelo Bueno was arrested by the LAPD on October 22, 1979, for the 10 murders during his reign of terror as one of the Hillside Stranglers. From this point, Bianchi was as unhelpful as he could possibly be without reneging on his plea deal. He began changing his story to minimize his cousin's involvement and overall was uncooperative with the police when they tried to obtain further statements or evidence before the trial. And for the twist that no one saw coming, Kenneth Bianchi had entered into a new relationship with a woman named Veronica Compton, who was in the midst of writing a play titled The Mutilated Cutter, which centered around a fictional serial killer, a female serial killer. She got into contact with Bianchi initially in the hopes of understanding the mind of a serial killer from his point of view. And during their discussions, Bianchi managed to convince Veronica to commit a copycat murder in L.A. to look like the police had got it wrong, that maybe the hillside strangler was still at large. Bianchi smuggled semen into a rubber glove for Veronica to plant at the scene knowing it would tie the previous murders to the copycat one. Veronica agreed and lured a woman to a motel room in L.A. When the woman arrived, Veronica attempted to strangle her, but the woman escaped and Veronica fled. She then sent a letter and a tape to the authorities telling them of the recent strangling attempt and how it followed the same M.O. as the Hillside Strangler. Even though it failed, she repeatedly told them that this proved that they had gotten it wrong. Kenneth Bianchi was innocent. Police saw straight through this and were quickly able to link Veronica to the crime. She was arrested and sentenced to 23 years in prison. Not ready to give up on her wild fascination with serial killers, Veronica Compton would later begin a relationship with Douglas Clark, who was one half of the Sunset Strip Killers. Kenneth Bianchi pled guilty to the two Washington murders and five of the Hillside Strangler murders. Even though he had done all he could do to sway the trial, he was sentenced to serve six life sentences instead of the death penalty due to his plea agreement. The jury also decided against the death penalty for Angelo Bueno and his crimes. Instead, he received life without parole. The presiding judge, Ronald George, cursed the rules that kept him from sentencing both to death, saying, quote, Angelo Bueno and Kenneth Bianchi slowly squeezed out of their victims their last breath of air and their promise for a future life. 
All for what? The momentary sadistic thrill of enjoying a brief, perverted sexual satisfaction and the venting of their hatred for women. If there ever was a case where the death penalty is appropriate, this is the case. In September 2002, Angelo Bueno died of a heart attack while serving his time in California. Today, Kenneth Bianchi is 70 years old and is imprisoned in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. He was rejected for parole in August 2018, and his next bid for freedom is in 2025. If there's one thing we can agree on, is that this monster deserves to die behind bars. That's the story today. Thank you for listening if you've made it this far. Yeah, a little longer than normal, but I felt like the details of this story needed a little extra time. And let me know if occasional longer episodes like this are cool with you, or if you prefer them to be always short. There's no wrong answer here. Connect with 10 Minute Murder on social media and let me know in the comments of the post. By the way, if you've listened this far and have not yet subscribed to 10 Minute Murder, what are you doing with your life? I know you've been hurt in the past and have a commitment aversion. I get it. I promise I do. So let's do this. Subscribe now. And if you don't like the way things are going later on, if you're not having a Baja blast, then ghost me. I won't even know, probably. Hey, again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, I hope that you'll find a moment and leave a five-star review. Let your friends know about 10-Minute Murder. You can find the links, if you need them, in the episode notes. Be safe and make good choices.